I've been having so many conversations of bandwidth and what people can just emotionally and mentally handle right now. I think just trying to be understanding in that is, you know, and empathy is everything. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today. The skim is working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Carly is also out today, but she'll be back next week. Today, we are very excited to have Lindsay Peoples-Wagner. Lindsay is the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue magazine and is the youngest editor-in-chief of a Condé Nast publication. She's also the only Black female editor-in-chief of a U.S. fashion magazine. As a career journalist, her work focuses on the intersecting world of style, identity, culture, and politics. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on today. We're really excited for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start out with our basic question. Skim your resume for us. I started really just interning. And so that's really how I figured out that I even wanted to be at Publications. And Teen Vogue um, was my first actual magazine internship and my first big internship in general. So after doing that in college, it became the first job that I actually got out of college. And I worked in the closet, basically schlepping and doing running all the errands and all the not fun things that wasn't on the hills uh, for a couple of years. And then from there, I went to to style.com, which merged into Vogue.com eventually. And that's when I really wanted to get into more writing and more of the storytelling and more of the behind the scenes of like how all of these pieces come together to really make a feature. And then I went to New York Magazine in the cut for a while. And I mean, that was an incredible experience for me because I was able to be at a place where I think that you learn so much about your own story and how that plays into everything that you write or edit or that you want to cover. And I think there I was able to really flex a lot of the muscles of things that I wanted to do from styling and producing shoots to working on, you know, really long form pieces like Black in Fashion. It's been over a year and a half, I would say, of being editor in chief of Teen Vogue. So it's been a, a fun full circle moment to be back now as editor-in-chief. And I think that we've really leaned into a lot of the core things of what I loved about Teen Vogue, but in a modern and fresh and inclusive way that I always wanted to make it. I always love talking to people in fashion when they talk about like, oh, I started off in the closet and it's this thing. And for people that aren't in fashion, it's like, wait, that, that is an actual real job that requires a lot of organization and it's how a lot of people start off. But I always think that's such a funny phrase. When people see you working in fashion in TV or films, it looks very glamorous and it looks like you're just around town shopping and everything's breezy and there's champagne. And it's not that at all for those of us who've actually had to work our way up. So I think that's an interesting point because you actually have to do a lot to figure out even what it takes to make a magazine come together. What's something that people can't find on your LinkedIn or that isn't Googleable about you that you want people to know? 
The only thing you can't really Google, but it's not like a secret and it's something that I have on my social media is how much I love to cook. I grew up in a family. We always had to be at the dinner table. There was no fast food allowed. I find it really just calming and reminds me of home. And so that's something that I really enjoy. And I think it's interesting because in fashion, people tend to not want to talk about food or not want food to be the center of any conversation because there's always these very stupid pressures and anxieties around body image and how much you consume. And even in this time, I think it's been really disappointing for me to see so many people in the industry say really insensitive things about, you know, not wanting to gain weight during this time. And it's incredibly insensitive, but also just ignorant. And I want the industry to move to this place of inclusivity in a real way. I'm so grateful for this body that I have, and I'm grateful to be able to make food and to be able to, you know, to live this life. And that's really all that I think cooking and that food conversation should be about. Yeah. And it's it's especially a very relevant conversation right now, as you said, thinking about so many people that are experiencing unexpected turns of poor health, that thinking about food and, and how we think about our bodies and being thankful for it in this moment is very different. On that note about COVID, you are leading a team, a team that is part of Condé Nast, which is, you know, like any major media company has had its its ups and downs. How are you leading through this with the balance of trying to keep people calm? I know from leading our own team that it's not like we have a magic eight ball of being able to see when this ends. How have you handled this environment from a leadership perspective? To be honest, I think it's been really tough because it is so open-ended. We don't really know what is going to happen in the future. And you can make all these plans for life and then, you know, life happens. And I think for me, it's been a lot of just having those conversations with people of, you know, do you need a mental health day? Do you not, do you feel like you can't do this today? And that's fine. And I'll take on that, you know, today if I can, and I'll figure out a way that we can, you know, move forward that feels good for everyone. I've been having so many conversations of bandwidth and what people can just emotionally and mentally handle right now as journalists and like someone who's always overly ambitious. There's so many ideas and things that I always want to do, but I've been very transparent with my staff of like, this is a great idea and I think this would be cool, but I'm not trying to pressure anyone and add to anyone's workload of this is a cool idea, but like I can't emotionally handle any more work or I can't, you know, spend any more time on this right now. And I think we all just have to be understanding of that. And, and, you know, so many people have had family issues and I had a family member pass away from COVID. So I'm so sorry. I'm very sorry for your family. No, it's okay. You know, it's just it's emotional roller coaster for everyone. And I think just trying to be understanding in that is, you know, empathy is everything. Yeah. Speaking about empathy, studies and more information is coming out that shows COVID-19 is infecting and killing people of color at a disproportionately higher rate. I think that there's been a lot of conversation about how this can reveal inequalities and disparities in our society that sometimes people don't spend time or don't want to think about. As someone that has written about the overlap between culture and politics, I'm just curious to talk about how you're thinking through this moment and and the type of data that we're seeing. It just sucks to see that people of color are going to be affected even more in the situation because, you know, people of color just disproportionately don't have access to all of the health care. And I mean, really what this 
COVID situation has put so much light on is our problems with class and how we treat certain people and how we give, you know, certain other people privileges. And I think it's it's been really upsetting to see a lot of popular influencers, you know, be able to get tested really quickly and be able to have the access to be able to get any medical advice and to be able to just hop in their RV and go to some house and be able to just escape. And this is a reality for a lot of people of color that they can't get the help that they need. And I think that for us, it's a constant conversation that we're having of how do we amplify the voices of people of color in this, because it just spans to so many things. Like even in my hometown, I'm from Wisconsin and like the Wisconsin primary, it was like so many of my family members were saying people of color are going to be directly affected by this election. And they're not being, you know, comforted in this at all. The the polling stations are actually safe and there's no hand sanitizer and they're not able to wash their hands in the bathroom. But they're told, you know, you need to just wait in line here for three hours. It affects so many different things. And I think the economics of it and, you know, this class war is just it's crazy. And I think that it makes me really upset because it's going to have such lasting effects on people of color's communities that won't even have the resources to make it better. And I mean, we're going to continue to figure out ways that we can help and ways that we can make those communities feel like we're at least here for them, because there are a lot of people in situations that won't be able to get out of this. Speaking of how you grew up, you grew up in Wisconsin. Tell us a little bit about what your family was like. Oh, I have a really loving family. Um, sorry. <laughs> it's weird to cry on an interview. My family is um, the best people on the planet. And this has just been really hard for us. But I think that I grew up in a family that just has really strong faith. And I think that that has been a big point um, in my life. My dad is a pastor. My husband's dad is a pastor. And I think that in these times, you really kind of lean on your faith to help you through this. And so regardless of, you know, family members being sick and um, this just being a really crazy time, I think that that's really stuck with me. And I think that the older I've gotten, the more that I'm grateful of the ways that my parents have grounded me. I'm not any of these things that people may think in fashion. That isn't really my identity. And my identity is really of who I am and the integrity that I have as a human being. I think that, you know, we just are I'm trying to just walk through this with as much grace and humility that they've instilled in me that I can. Do you think your family then, like looking back on who you are, would be surprised at what you've become today? Yes and no. I mean, I was always very opinionated on a lot of artistic things. So like my mom always jokes, you know, they like allowed my sister and I to pick out colors for our bedroom. And my sister just chose this really, you know, pale floral wallpaper that was just very basic in my opinion. (laughs) And I was like, this, none of this will work for me. And I need a custom color. And my mom was like, who do you think you are? Yeah, I can see that being such a pain in the ass for a mom. Like, just pick a fucking color. (laughs) Yeah, that that was me. She saved like all of my art projects. And, you know, she was, she's that mom. And so she always is like, we were really upset when the glitter spilled. And we we always had to have talks with you about, you know, things aren't (laughs) going to go your way. And I mean, I was always definitely into creative things. I was in singing lessons piano, violin. I like to draw. Like those are, I love to do all of those things, but I think the fashion stuff didn't come till a lot later for sure. Just because the nature of growing up in the Midwest, you don't know anybody really who works at a publication. And so it, it took a while for me to figure out really 
how I wanted to use all of those creative aspects. So when you talked about in in the beginning, when you're talking about your love of cooking and sitting down for family dinners, but as you said, you know, you have those family traditions, but it's not like fashion was necessarily the, the big thing that was on people's minds. How did you go from being this creative kid who saw things that others didn't necessarily see in the same way to thinking about it as this is something that's more than just a side hobby? I mean, I think a lot of it comes from my parents. Like a lot of the conversations that I had with them growing up was that you can do whatever you want to do. We're not going to, you know, just because we're in the Midwest, we're not going to tell you like you need to sell insurance. But you have to understand that this is bigger than you. You should not take this life for granted and that people have literally died for you to be free. And so you have to do something with this life. And I think even always knowing that and feeling that and thinking about my own ancestors and what they had to go through makes you a little bit like, I need to figure it out and I need to figure out how I can have the biggest impact with this life. I don't think, you know, even my own grandparents would ever have dreamed that I would be, you know, doing this kind of thing. And I think that that's really just a testament to my upbringing, but also just trying to figure out a way to make it, make all of this different. And I think, um, a conversation I had with my mom that I think about a lot is when I really got into like watching Girlfriends and Sex in the City and seeing fashion and culture on television. And a lot of that was really, you know, trying to figure out like, I love this stuff, but why do I love it so much? And I would just rip up all these magazines and put them on my wall. And, you know, my mother would say like, you know, you can love all this stuff, but none of these people look like you. They don't have this kind of life. They don't understand what regular normal people are doing day to day. And if you're going to, you know, try to be in this world and and make a difference, you're going to have to change things and it's going to be really hard. And she really instilled this motto in me of like, you're going to have to be what you needed when you were younger to really change things. And so I take that with me every day. And I think that that's really where the thought started. How'd you get your foot in the door? You talked about this internship. It's not like it's easy to get these internships. So (laughs) when you get it, I definitely know what it's like to feel the pressure of needing to parlay it into something to be able to even think about getting a full-time job in the field. Yeah. I mean, when I graduated, I didn't have a job. And I remember looking around because I also went to school in the Midwest and I remember everybody had a job and I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, this is crazy. But I mean, every internship that I had, I was just like, I don't come from a wealthy family. I don't have the money to wear full look Chanel as an intern or as an assistant or even now. But like I will work harder than everyone else here. I will. If you want me to figure out where this look came from, I'll do all the research. I'll stay late. Like if we can't find this glove that we need to return the designer, I'll go through this whole closet and figure out where it is. Like and I think that. Um, yeah, I mean, when you want it bad enough and you know that you need that foot in the door, you do what it takes. So, I mean, a lot of it was also even when I moved here to New York 
and I was an assistant, you know, I was only making $9 an hour. So I was working two other jobs. And so I would be at Teen Vogue during the day. And then at night, I would change the store mannequins at DKNY. And I would do that from like nine to midnight. And then on the weekends, I was waitressing at a restaurant in Tribeca because I was just like, okay, I need to hustle. Like my salary isn't enough to have rent or anything like that, but I'm going to make it work. And I think the, I mean, that's just, you do what you have to do when you're in those kind of situations. I appreciate talking to you about this. And I think it's a really important thing that not enough people starting off in the business really think about the realities. I started off in news, very similar in that you work long hours, you don't get paid a lot, didn't have health insurance, waitress to be able to afford my first job. And a question that I I always go back and forth on answering myself, I'm really curious to hear what you think, is from people who are entry level, they're trying to get their foot in the door. And they're looking at the job that can pay the bills, but isn't the one that they're passionate about, or taking the job that gets them the foot in the door, but not knowing how to necessarily afford it. What would you say to people starting off? I mean, I always tell people, like, if you want it bad enough, you will do it even if it doesn't pay. And I say that as someone who doesn't come from money. So, like, I don't think it's worth going the route of taking a job that you don't want to then end up in a situation later on and you're having a crisis of who I am in my life and why did I go this route? Like, I would rather just go after what I really want. It's a hustle constantly and still to this day, but I wouldn't have it any other way. When I tell people like I've had to do this and I've had to do that and I've had to freelance and all this other stuff, I also tell people like, you know, the struggle really isn't for everyone. And you have to realize what you're willing to do to get there because I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I'm saying like, this is what it's going to take. This is what it's like. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't want to struggle and you're just like, you know what, I really just want to go to brunch with my friends. I don't want to have to waitress. That's a different life and that's okay. But you have to choose. So I want to talk about the expose everywhere and nowhere. You interviewed over 100 people of color in the fashion industry and had really interesting and emotional conversations about racism in the industry. When you were publishing it, what did you think the impact was going to be? I mean, honestly, I didn't know. What people don't understand is that you look at it now and you're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. That's so amazing. But... That just wasn't the reality of it. I think that piece for a lot of people made them feel really liberated and more comfortable. And, you know, so many things have happened in the world to make Black people specifically feel like, okay, I, regardless of people wanting my voice to be silenced, I'm going to speak up. But, you know, a lot of people in the industry who have come before me that have been doing this a lot longer than me, you know, they haven't felt that way until the last three years. They haven't felt like this was an open forum of, you know what, I can complain about somebody because I can and it won't have any repercussions on me. And I think that it was scary for me because, I mean, I had so many legends who I adore and respect just tell me like, Lindsay, you're going to be blacklisted. This is not something that you should be doing. Like you have to let some things die because people don't want to hear us complain or they don't want to hear us talk about things that have happened to us. And I understood that. And I sat on it and I prayed about it for a really long time. But I felt like even if it was the last thing, the last big piece that I had, and if it was the last, you know, big thing that I was able to do, it felt worth it to me. And I felt like, okay, like I was, I was really at peace with it. Um, So when it came out, I actually, I was in Mexico with my husband. I wasn't actually even here. And the next day when I turned my phone on, I knew. 
So what was it like to be tapped for an editor-in-chief role? Not only in general, but by Anna Wintour, obviously a a legend, and also to think about interviewing for the job, knowing you were going to be potentially the youngest editor-in-chief. I mean, I think it's it's crazy in general because you never really know where things are going to go and you don't want to get too excited, you know, before something happens. But I think that a lot of people, I don't know, I think a lot of people like to talk about my age because, I mean, I know that I'm young, but I've always felt like that's not an excuse and it's not a reason to, mm-hmm. you know, to be a certain way and try to carry myself in the most mature way possible. I mean, in everything, it's just like I want to make the wisest decision and thought out and, and be level headed as much as I can. And so when the opportunity came, of course, I was excited. But I think also I really am who I am. And I think that a lot of that has made me feel in fashion overall of is this what people really want? Because I am very, you know, all the time, inclusivity all the time. Here's what we need to be changing. Here's what we need to be doing and trying to push that conversation forward. And that's not for everyone. And I think that it's been a really amazing opportunity because Anna has been so kind and really understanding of a lot of things that I want to change and, you know, inclusivity being really at the forefront of everything that we do and that I do. So, It's been cool. It's been a really cool opportunity. You've been in this role for a bit now. What are things that you really want and think need to change that you feel like you're in a position to make headwinds on? I mean, so many things that I really want to move, but I think it's using this position and this platform to just change as many lives as we can. Our motto is really to make young people feel seen and heard. And I think that If we can do that in any way of like how we're, you know, doing our virtual prom um, or our virtual commencement, like I want young people to feel like they get it and we are there for them in any way that we can be even during this crazy pandemic time. I mean, I think it's it's so many things specifically in the fashion industry that I think on the surface have moved, but I think it could really continue to grow and change over time. And specifically, you know, inclusivity in every way, I think really does need to grow in the industry. People still have biases about certain people of color and assuming certain things or biases on, you know, what is an acceptable plus size body and what they feel like, you know, should be heightened as chic and cool and acceptable to be on a cover. And I think all of those things can be challenged constantly. And I think that someone like me is just interested in that. I want to talk about the concept of mentorship, because it sounds like from your story and from what you've said in the past, you didn't necessarily have it earlier in your career, or you've talked about the lack of being able to see people and be like, oh, that's someone that, you know, looks like me or has the same background as me. How do you think about that now that you are in a position to obviously be a mentor? What do you think about the importance of it? I feel like when I learned about mentorship, it was like, okay, they're going to take you out to lunch and then you're going to do this. And it was a very strict idea, a narrow idea, I think, of what I thought it was going to be. But I think over time now, I realize that it really is a two-way street and has to be more of a relationship with somebody that 
really feels like they're also getting something out of it. It can't just be you asking this person for help, recommendations, all of those things, even though that is very valid. I think it really has to be more of a two-way street of that person feeling like, okay, I'm investing in this for these reasons, or this person really, you know, adds value or, you know, all those things. I think it just, it has to make sense. And I think that I've been blessed to have really good bosses and those people have become mentors to me because I think that over time in working for them and understanding them and them getting understanding of me, we were able to, you know, come to a place of, okay, I can reach out to this person. But I think it's hard. Like I wouldn't have had that relationship with them from blind emailing them or, you know, just DMing them. Like there were reasons and there was a method to how our relationships developed over time. You obviously work for someone that's a legend now in the business, but you worked for Stella Bugby before that. You've worked for women that have had huge impacts and careers. You also talk about how what you want to do requires pushing boundaries and change. There's a certain sense of fearlessness just hearing you speak. Would you describe yourself that way? Everyone says that, but I don't think of it that way. I just think that if I'm not doing this, no one else will do it. If I don't do this work, honestly, I've looked and searched for other people and it's just not (laughs) really in sight. And I think that a lot of people can get to positions like this and just be grateful and super comfortable and not push and just be like, look, I got the job or I got access to this network or I you know, was able to make this amount of money. So I'm just going to sit here and enjoy it because I've worked hard. But that's just not the way that my parents raised me. It's time to work even harder. And so I don't really think it's fearlessness. I think it's just the way it is. What do you want teens who are looking at not just your magazine publication, but all of the media that's out there to really think about and kind of be a conscious consumer as they're growing up in this environment? There's so much out there right now. And I think, you know, I've been saying to people that I want our readers to really be aware, but not anxious. I think that they're is a tendency, especially now with everybody being home to overconsume and to, you know, watch too much of the news and read too much of, you know, all the bad things and all the terrible things that are happening in the world. And I want them obviously to be aware and we're all we're always, you know, give you the tools and resources to make your own decisions and live your life whichever way, you know, you please. But I don't want to create an environment of anxiety or making people feel like there's no hope. Yeah, it's a delicate balance of obviously like informing people, but giving them some escape and some optimism and some joy in that. And I think that's just a testament of what we do all the time. Today, we had a piece go up of Jalela, who's a TikTok creator. And that's just fun because like everybody wants to do a TikTok dance. But yes, we also have a ton of pieces on, you know, where we're looking with the election in Biden and how things are are moving with the sustainability conversation in COVID-19. So I think it's a delicate balance of all the things. I did do my first TikTok during the the reign of COVID. Uh, Okay, we're going to move on to our last segment, our lightning round. What has replaced your morning commute? Honestly, nothing. I mean, I'm doing my same routine of getting up every day and and still, you know, getting dressed. But I think I've just been spending more time on my gratitude journal. That's nice. Carly and I have not worn anything but sweatpants for the past month. Knowing you work in fashion, are you getting dressed? 
every day. So this is a very luxurious brand called Hanes. Um, mm-hmm. I've only been wearing Hanes. That's literally yes. all, it, but in different colors because I like colors. So, I mean, I'm getting dressed and putting on earrings because I just wear hoops every day. But mm-hmm. other than that, no. What's the last show you binge watch? Honestly, I'm sorry, but Tiger King. Like, I can't stop talking about it. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm obsessed with Joe Exotic. I really want him to get out of prison. See, I'm not. I watched it, and I'm obsessed. But I'm kind of okay with him being in prison. Maybe the sentence was ridiculous. I just need more content. So, like, he has to get out for us to get more. That's true. So you said you like to cook. What's something you've been making a ton of while home? I mean, everybody's been leaning into the bread making. That's yes. That's been happening here, too. I made a baguette last night. I've already perfected my croissant recipe. I will take any ideas of bread things that I should be doing that I have not perfected. Can you skim your nighttime routine for us? Usually just maybe finding something to watch, maybe not. Reading a book is usually better because I can sleep better. I do my full skincare routine. I like to light all the candles in the house. It drives my husband nuts, uh, which is great. And I just make it very serene. And I tie up my hair and I sit and I just try to calm my mind and not look at the screen because that makes it worse trying to get to sleep. Okay, last question is actually from one of our skimmers. So something our community wants to know is how do you actually stop working at the end of the day and walk away from work at the end of the night, given that at least for me, it's in the same room right now. So it's extra hard. I mean, I would love to know the answer to that as well. (laughs) Honestly, the only thing that I found that works is actually telling myself you need to go get up and take a walk outside. Yeah. If I'm still in the house, I'll be on my phone and then I'll be like, oh, it would be easier to get on the laptop to do this. And then you just start all over again. So I actually have to physically get up. I think that's the same with a lot of things. Like if I'm spiraling in anxiety about something, I just have to physically get up and be like, no, you're not going to have this thought pattern right now. We're going to go move to something else. Lindsay, thank you so much for the time and congratulations. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. I'm Lindsay Johnson, and I'm a co-founder and CEO of Weezy. And I'm Liz Eichel, co-founder and creative director of Weezy. And we sell luxury bath and robe products online. Our team is based in Savannah, Georgia. The rest of the team is in Atlanta, Georgia. COVID-19 has affected our business, honestly, across all facets of it. Most, I'd say, importantly, we've seen it in our supply chain. So our factory has been closed for a few weeks in Portugal. Our fulfillment employees in Georgia are having to stay at home with their children whose schools are canceled. So the business is only a year and a half old and we were growing really rapidly when coronavirus sort of started back in early March. And so 
we're still adapting every day to the new normal. We're really just learning as we go, but just keeping super structured check-ins, doing most of those check-ins via video to get some FaceTime. I think what's been most helpful for our team is just staying super transparent and keeping everyone in the loop as changes come up with the company. You know, this is such an anxiety producing time. And I think that's helped to alleviate some worries. The skim community can help Weezy by helping us spread the word. We're a consumer business. So the more people that know about us, the better. If you're not in the market for luxury bath products or robes right now, we would appreciate if you follow us on Instagram at Weezy Towels. Check out our website at wheezytowels.com or sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 